0: Our second scripture passage is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossian church, read from the New Living Translation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it—the word of the Lord.
1: The journey motif. The journey motif is very common in literature, in film, in storytelling. You know it from the uh, the earliest of literature with Odysseus on his journey back from from the lands of war to his homeland. And in these journey motifs, you get the idea of trying to understand who you are and what life's all about. In Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam are on that journey to get rid of the evil ring. In a recent movie, chef John Favreau plays a chef trying to re himself, and so he journeys from Miami back to Los Angeles in a food truck with his son and his best friend, and in that process discovers who he is and what's really important. This journey motif idea is something that we grab hold of. It's it's a way we understand life and what life is all about ourselves. Because it's a way of asking questions like, what am I after? What's important? Where is all of this going? And so we use the phrase being gospel-driven people here at Christ Church Vienna. And it actually fits along with the idea of the journey motif. You see, what we're trying to talk about is what does it look like to allow the gospel to be the fuel that drives us, to let, let life in Christ be the vehicle in which we live, let God decide the direction and destination of our lives, to be gospel-driven people. And so some of the ways that we talk about it, some of our subpoints in being gospel-driven is allowing the gospel to define our identity and worldview. Your worldview is fundamentally the direction you're going and how you decide the direction you're going. We want to integrate the gospel, a whole Bible theology, into our lives. See, Christianity is not just something we do on the side. It's something that defines all of us and where we're going. And that's what it is to be gospel-driven. And that's why this summer we're spending the entire summer exploring the passages in Paul that most clearly declare the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ so that we can by reading these passages and meditate on meditating on them and memorizing them again and again come back to the basic root and fundamental starting place and say what is it all about how does this gospel change me and how should it continue to be changing me Our passage today is from Colossians 1. And the verses we were supposed to memorize this week, if you were so inclined, was verses 19 and 20. Now, actually, I only put down on the back of our card to memorize verse 20, but it doesn't make sense, really, without verse 19. Um, But the, the, the whole passage is here. It's summed up, really, in this memory verse. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And what we see in, in this simple verse here, this simple phrase, is the whole story of the gospel. It tells us, it tells us that, that God, through Christ, has reconciled us, made peace. Basically, that there's a solution, which means there's also a problem. We are not reconciled. We are not, by nature, at peace with God. So it gives us the solution, it gives us the problem, and it gives us the solver, Christ, who in our passage here, in, the, in this verse, it, it says that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is Savior and Lord. And so in, in looking at this passage today, we're going to look at these three things that, that show up here. One, who is Lord and God? What is our problem? And how has God provided the solution? The most clear thing in our passage is who is Lord and God. We get this in verses 15 through 19 in particular. Now, you see, Colossians 1, 15 and following was actually what you call a hymn or a creed. Now, we think of hymn as a song you sing, but in New Testament studies, they talk about a hymn being the sort of statement of faith that was probably used in the earliest church. So even though Paul writes this, he might actually be quoting from a hymn or creed that was used in the church in the first century. So when they were trying to understand what is it all about, they would say, well, let's recite the creed. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and they would go on. And you notice some things that it describes in talking about Jesus in this passage, It's very clear that Jesus, according to this, is God. He is not just the image of God, the reflection of God, the tangible nature of God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, if you want to know God, you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You don't need to sit in a quiet room and detach yourself from reality. You need to go to Jesus. In him, everything that can be known about God is revealed. This Jesus, the passage claims, was also the creator. The one through whom and for whom all things were created. Not only that, he is the sustainer of all things. It says, in him, all things hold together. And we've talked about this before. But the very idea of this is that Jesus keeps everything alive and that includes bad things. Satan owes his existence to the benevolence of Jesus. And there, hanging on the cross, the very people who crucified him and are mocking him do not get their next breath if he doesn't give them life, even as his own is being snuffed out. He is the creator and sustainer. And, and it says he is the head not just the head of the church but in him in in everything he is preeminent this is trying to declare that Jesus is supreme he's king he's lord the kind of language that's used here should be reserved for god and it's used to describe a rural peasant jewish guy who a few years earlier had been crucified Because the fundamental claim of the gospel is this Jesus is God and he is Lord and he is meant to be supreme and head. And this is where the problem starts. See, I said it it describes who is Lord and God, Jesus. This passage describes the solution and it also describes the problem. And our fundamental problem is this. We have trouble with there being a Lord and God besides us. Paul puts it this way in verse 21. He says, And you who were once alienated from God and hostile in mind against God, doing evil deeds. Alienated, hostile, doing evil. Now if you ask the average person on the street, Are you hostile to God? Are you evil? The answer is going to be no, right? None of us think of ourselves that way. You know, the uh, average person might say, well, look, I, I'm not that religious, I'll admit that. But I'm not God's enemy. If He exists, I certainly don't want to be His enemy. Most of us would at least say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about God. I don't think about it much, but I guess I, I can't be against Him. This says you're evil. How many of us think that we're evil, right? You ask the average person on the street, are you evil? No, God. I mean, I, I, I'm not a criminal. I'm not a horrible dictator. I'm not perfect either, don't get me wrong, but I'm a pretty good guy. The gospel makes the claim that we are fundamentally evil, hostile to God, and completely alienated from him even if it doesn't feel that way. Two areas that I want to look at that help us to see our alienation. One is our moral standards, and the other is our worldview. You know, we say we're pretty good people, we're not evil. But here's what I've found. I've found most of us, whether you're Christian or not, create a set of standards, moral standards, that's based on our own understanding of things. Even as Christians who are trying to walk in the ways of God, we emphasize or de-emphasize certain things based on our own reason and experience. I, if I look back to my time in high school, here's some things I saw myself doing back then. One was, I, I had a moral standard that was based on comparison. And so I would find things that I was good at and emphasize those in my own understanding. I would think, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty nice to dorky kids, You know, the uncool kids, I'm nice to them, and that guy's not. And so I would see myself in comparison to somebody else. Some of us even go a step further is not only do we emphasize our good things, but we emphasize their bad things. So it would go like this for me. I'm nice to uncool kids, and he gets drunk. So I'm a pretty good guy, right? we'll pick and choose the aspects of God's purposes that we want to emphasize because we already do them. And so I would, I would look at myself and say, well, look, I don't gossip. I hate gossips, in fact. And I don't smoke pot. In fact, what's more, I go to church every Sunday. And even as a high school kid, I tithe. That means I gave 10% of whatever I made mowing grass or working at my uncle's restaurant to, to charity or to the church. Those are the things I emphasized. Why? Because I was already doing them. I was avoiding pot, and I didn't like gossiping, and I went to church. So that's the main standard of God, right? It's funny how we create standards that we're able to keep. I always pass my own tests. I'm not evil if it's by my standards. But when you get to the Bible... The Bible makes a claim that God is God and his standards are different than ours and our lives are meant to submit to his standards. And so we get the basics of it in the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie. And most of us, by that standards, aren't evil either by the way we tend to read them. How many people in the past week have actually murdered somebody? You raise your hand, we're calling the police. (laughs) But of course, what does Jesus do? He takes it a step further. He points not only to our actual actions, but to the motives and thoughts inside of us, and then to the positive side of what we should be doing with each of these commandments. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say, if you have anger towards somebody, unforgiveness towards somebody, Mean thoughts towards somebody, you've already murdered them. And you know, if if we could go inside of each of our heads and look over the past week, how many people have wanted somebody dead in the past week? If you're a college student who's recently home and you haven't had those thoughts in the past week or month dealing with your parents, you're probably lying. Not only is it our thoughts, but Jesus calls us to the positive. It's not just don't murder, it's love. Actively love one another. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. God's standard is not our standard. You shall not commit adultery. Great. Okay. In the past year, I've not actually had sex with somebody who was not my wife. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, if your thoughts are going towards I would like to, there's an entire industry that drives the internet that is built on that. And not only that, but Jesus and into the New Testament points to the positive side of it. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God takes up residence in you. Do not use your body however you want. Your body is the Lord's. And you're meant to find satisfaction not in physical pleasure but in union with Christ. There's something better. Our our willingness and desire to follow God wholly or not reveals that we are actually hostile and alienated from God. We may not feel it because we set our own standards. And the people around us, well, we're doing pretty good compared to them. But our natural state, the Bible says, is that we ignore God. We set our own standard and defend our own standard. And you know, if you tried this, if you tried this, let's say, for example, if you tried setting your own standards because your own reason said, well, this is okay, it's gotta be okay, I don't care what God says. If you tried that with the police, Think about this. Any of you who have driven in Vienna for more than a month will realize that the police will set up speed traps on every road. And here's the deal. I've determined this after living in Vienna for much of my life. The speed limit is absurdly low in Vienna. On Beulah Road, on Park Street, on Lawyers Road, you're supposed to go 25 miles per hour? That is absurd. It's impossible to go 25 on those roads. So I encourage you to try setting your own standard. And the next time you get pulled over for going 35 in a 25 on Park Street or Beulah Road, you just tell that Vienna police officer, Sir, isn't this speed limit absurd? It's absurdly low. Nobody can drive that speed limit. My natural inclination is to go this way. I was born to go this way. The car wants to go this way. Let's go this way. Just write this one off. but isn't this what we do with God? When we take his standard and say, but God, come on, that's not the way we do it now. Or this is okay. It's reasonable. It's not hurting anyone. I didn't run over any squirrels. God's standard is God's standard. And when we reject God's standard as archaic or unrealistic, or we accuse God, God, you're just trying to keep good stuff from me we are hostile and alienated from God. You see, at its root, alienation is a lordship issue. It's always asking the question, who or what is supreme in my life? And we don't just see it in our moral standards, we see it in the entire outlook and direction of our life. That's why we say we want the gospel to define our identity and our worldview. Your worldview for those of us who haven't been in college recently, is your values, your priorities, your aim, the way you see the world and see yourself in the world. It's the direction of your life. And so our question that we're asking at Christ Church Vienna again and again is, does the gospel define your worldview? Is it shaped? Is your worldview and direction shaped by the Lord or by something else? What I've found is that there's a lot of things that shape my worldview. You know this very clearly, peers The peer groups you run in shape your worldview. Sometimes you can see this very clearly in fashion, right? What you should be wearing right now or not. So in eighth grade, in eighth grade, this was the fashion. This is called pegging your jeans. We literally walked around in eighth grade with our pants like this. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. And then you know what happened? I went to ninth grade here at Madison High School, and the first week, none of the 10th, 11th, or 12th graders were doing this. And so very quickly, my pant legs went back down, and they never went back up again until there was an 80s party a few years ago. Peers shape not only fashion, they shape your aims in life. You know, if you were at school in this area, compared to rural parts of America... What you think you need to do after high school is going to be very different. In this area, people, kids, drive and are driven towards college. And not just college, but also the better colleges. So you should be disappointed if you just get into a regular college and not one of those. Peers shape not only our tastes, but the aim of our life. And adults do this too. I would never have known the importance of overseas vacations or kitchen remodels or my kids being in travel sports if it hadn't been for all of you. <laughs> culture, culture shapes our worldview. That's what all those media pieces do TV, film, internet, music. They normalize values. And they normalize behavior. And sometimes the culture shapes things in a way that are very God-glorifying. And sometimes they shape them in a way that are very God-alienating and hostile. And the problem is when we just let culture shape us and not God be the filter, we're putting culture over God in the direction of our life. We can see this in the way that commercials influence us. If if commercials didn't work, then companies wouldn't spend money on them. But you know what commercials aim to do? They make us want what we never knew we didn't have. They shape what we think is important. Look at the way that, that culture around us has shaped our identity in regards to body and body image. What is a good body? It is the after picture in the p90x commercials the cut chiseled guy it is the supermodel body there's an ideal out there and that's what you have to achieve and you know what's funny about culture is it's constantly shifting and changing what the ideal is now was not the ideal a few hundred years ago let's go back to the baroque period and look at some images of art Here's an image of beauty. In fact, this is meant to be Mary, the mother of God. What do you notice about her face? She's got a double chin. Full-faced, double chin is the image of perfect beauty. Or how about the famous milkmaid picture? What size dress do you think she's wearing? two or 20. She did not buy that in the tweens section. And yet that was the picture of beauty not too long ago. You know what this tells me? I'm not trying to say that that one is right or wrong inherently. What I'm saying is, look at how culture changes. So how are we to know what is right or wrong? It's always shifting and changing. Right now, in America, thank God, culture says that racism is out. Sixty years ago, that wasn't the case. And according to a Washington Post article yesterday, in France, of all places, anti-Semitism is on the rise. So do we let culture shape our values, or is something over culture? Is something greater than our peers? You know, the problem is that at its root, each of us allows ourselves to be the primary filter. It's my thoughts, my reason, my feelings, my experiences that pick and choose my worldview, influenced by my peers, influenced by my culture. It's not the gospel that's defining me. It's me that's defining me. You may not feel alienated from God, You may not feel hostile to God. You may not view yourself as evil. But our alienation is revealed in the me-driven worldview that most of us fall back on. See, at its root, our alienation is summed up in this. It's life without regard for God. The gospel defines our alienation as a worship problem, a worship problem. So when it says that you're evil, it's not just that your actions are criminal. It's that I reject God's ways and choose my own. Or I don't trust that God can satisfy me. I need to find satisfaction on my own. My evil is a worship problem. I worship my own needs and reject God's commands. I may not feel hostile to God, but the reality is it's not just the new atheists with their mockery of the existence of God who are hostile to God. Any moment in my life when I am living on my own, making my own decisions, I am being king and lord of my life like Absalom usurping the throne of his father David while David was still alive. When we live without regard for God, we are taking over the throne. Our hostility to God is a worship problem. The natural state when Christ is not Lord is alienation. My natural tendency is to ignore Christ, to avoid him, to just live without thought for him. And honestly, it's not hard to do. There's so many other things to distract me in a given day that I don't live with constant regard for Christ. Romans 1 calls it the great exchange. When Paul writes in Romans 1, that we have exchanged the glory of the creator in order to worship the creation or creatures. See, our alienation is seen in the fact that we put something else on the throne of our lives. Something that drives us. Something we're aiming for. Something that defines us. And so we live for success. And that can be anywhere career, raising your kids, on the sports field, in academics. We live for success. Or we live for our friends' approval. Or we live for sexual pleasure we live for the Republican Party, we'll find something to worship besides God. If Christ is not supreme, I will worship someone or something else. This makes it clear that we all reject God. We're all hostile to God. We're all alienated. The very, very bad and the morally good are by nature alienated from God. Male and female are by nature alienated from God. Adults and kids are alienated from God. Prisoners and priests are alienated from God. Republicans and Democrats are alienated from God. Fans of the Washington football team and fans of the Dallas Cowboys are alienated from God. But that's only the first half of the gospel. The second half that's clearly stated in here is the positive side of the good news, is that though we are alienated, we have been reconciled through Jesus Christ. He makes peace by the blood of the cross. By his death, we are reconciled and peace is brought for us. You see, the great news is that while we are enemies of God by nature, God does not wage war against us. He wages war against himself on the cross. He doesn't say you surrender. He surrenders himself. God executes justice on himself in our place so that we who are alienated and at odds with God have been reconciled. We who are hostile to God have peace with God. We who by nature are evil are now considered holy and blameless and above reproach. I may not look like that on a given day. I may still look evil, but God views me as holy and blameless. He doesn't hold my sin against me because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. In verse 13, which we didn't read, It's summed up as the great transfer. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. I am no longer in the realm of death and eternal death. Even though I wrestle, I am now in the realm and reign of Jesus Christ and will be for all eternity. You know, the gospel, the gospel is a great equalizer. Says there in verse twenty, all things. All things have been reconciled by him. That means all people need the cross. But the cross is for all people. That means the cross is even for that obnoxious sports dad who I dislike so much. And the cross is for mean and jealous girls who you wish would get their own. And the cross is for people who live a balanced life, who are pretty good guys, people who are great citizens and good parents and pretty much have it all pretty equally balanced out and are mature, people like me. Cross is for that guy and that girl and me. The gospel says all of us are alienated from God, but any of us can be reconciled through faith in Christ. All of us must recognize this and surrender to Christ as Lord. Verse 23 gives us an if. We'll kind of end on this one. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast in the hope of the gospel that if is not a maybe you won't it's an it's an expectation of you will you will but it's also giving us a picture of gospel driven your life now it's not just hey you you kind of went to camp once when you were 14 and you decided christianity was was now your faith or you grew up in a church it's that your life is being filled by transformed by led by driven by the gospel Your hope is set on the gospel. Your life is fixed on the faith. This is who you are and where you're going. It's allowing the gospel to make claims on everything in our life what we do with our money, our talent, our family, our thoughts, our bodies. To be gospel driven is to submit the entirety of my life, my moral standards and my worldview, my view of myself and my view of you. Everything about the direction of my life is submitted to Christ. My hope is in the gospel. You know, if life is like a journey, then being gospel driven is more than just stopping the car of your life at church every Sunday to fill up. It's more as some of you have heard who have grown up in churches, it's more than allowing Jesus to ride shotgun. You know, hey, you can totally adjust the air if you want to, Jesus, and whatever radio station you want, I'm cool with that. Just sit back and enjoy. I'll I'll get us there. It's letting Jesus be the driver. The one who's controlling the destination and the speed and the stops and the direction and the route, the entirety of your life is submitted to him. Let the gospel define what's important, what's good, and where you're going. Let Jesus reign in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with your lordship. It is not natural to us. We set our own standards. We're influenced by so many outside forces. And yet the gospel claims you and you alone are God and king. Give us eyes to see, faith to trust, and a willingness to walk in your ways and experience the joy and satisfaction of life driven by you. In your name we pray. Amen.
2: Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journey. from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wait no more he shall is the, the king. king, and all the and earth, earth shall fall. sing that Jesus, Jesus is the